Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Sam Brocken again as a guest. Sam Brocken is a public health expert with a background in global health and viral transmissions. And that's the change since the last interview I had. He's an ex-lecturer and head of research in healthcare at different university colleges. Thanks so much for being a guest on the podcast. Maybe you can give an update about what happened because there's something that happened the day after my podcast was released. Yeah, yeah. The day after the, your, the release of your podcast, I got fired. Now, I'm not sure if there's a, co- a causal link between both, both of them. My dismissal was already being discussed for a couple of weeks. The day, I think, when you released the podcast was March 30th, and I got fired the 31st. Now, you have to know that 31st was the board of directors meeting, so I don't think one has a causal link with the other. Mm-hmm. Discussed beforehand, and I was just dismissed at the yeah, at the same time you brought out your podcast with me. It's already seven months now uh, since we talked to each other, and within these six months, uh, six, seven months, yeah, well, I got fired, dismissed, and yeah, don't think I have uh, any chance of uh, finding another job here uh, in Belgium. So I'm sorry for you, man, like because mostly what you do is you just use data, you just use numbers, you have different interpretations from what's going on. I'm curious, what was the official reason that they fired you then? Well, I have to be careful. I can't comment on that because there are still my lawyers are still uh, uh, taking a look at the dossier and trying yeah, to okay. some things. But let's um, keep it simple. It was not a reason uh, of me being in the press, of course, or me coming forward in the media with an alternative discord. So they found another excuse. In my opinion, it's an excuse, but uh, that'll be a judicial uh, Thing that has to be discussed and uh, so. yeah because that's i'll listen to a podcast uh, from matthias smet who is also on this uh, podcast and the chances that this is going to be on youtube is pretty low so if you're going to listen to this or check this out check my rumble subscribe to my rumble channel or check my podcast channels where we can still openly talk about stuff without censorship and he was talking about conspiracy theories and he said there isn't much pressure or i don't know a lot of people who are actually pressured to shut their mouth and not to talk openly about these things. But then I know your example of someone who's just giving a different perspective and you got a lot of heat from appearing on national TV. So do you feel that there's a lot of pressure in academics openly, passively to not speak out? Um, I thought I talked to a lot of colleagues of mine and they all said the same. There is a passive force that basically inhibits people to talk. There is no such thing as a, as a, I don't, I don't think so. There has been ever a kind of structure or a systematic ban of from the academic to keep people away from the media. But I think a lot of colleagues just don't dare to. And we've seen it before. I wasn't the first one. Yeah, well, I was the first one to get dismissed in Belgium. Mm-hmm. I was the seventh in a row that was asked to remain silent after being coming forward within the mainstream media. The six colleagues before me didn't get fired, but they were banned to talk to the media. Mm. And I was the first one to be fired. So now nobody dares to talk anymore. So 
You know what's funny? I know, and that's funny. Funny is the wrong term here. I know when you said you were going to appear there on the <laughs> mainstream media, and I still know what my comment is. I said, if I were you, I wouldn't talk to the mainstream media because they will commit character assassination. Yeah, well, that's basically what happened. So what I did, what I did within the, in the short interview we had on, or the debate, the small debate we had on national television, just were three things I questioned. Mm -hmm. First of all, it was February, so uh, we have to look back at the, the time frame, February 21. And one of the experts said, I have the absolute proof that transmission after vaccination is impossible, mm -hmm. which I doubted. And I spoke up and I said, look, you can't prove this. That was the first thing. Second thing, and in, in the meantime, we all know that transmission is still possible after vaccination. So he bluntly defended himself and basically made a fool out of me. But yeah, in the meantime, it's been proven all over and all over again that transmission is still possible. Second thing, what I uh, questioned was, the was an ethical consideration. How ethical can it be to start vaccinating youth Young youngsters under 18, knowing that they don't develop the disease in severe manners, that they basically are not a vector of transmission and have never been. This was a statement I made. And the third one was that I questioned the efficiency back then already of mm -hmm. any possible Corona pass, green pass, QR codes, whatever you call it, to control people entering countries, facilities, events, restaurants, you name it. And the next day I was put away as an anti-vaxxer in the whole media. So I was front cover news in the whole of the country and as a, put away as an anti-vaxxer and a total lunatic. We're seven months further in the story with what have be, has been proven up until now. Transmissions are still possible. There is no difference between unvaccinated, vaccinated, symptomatic or asymptomatic people. They all carry the same viral load if they get infected. Moreover, we see that the infection fatality rate, the latest figures published by X-Force at all, under 50, 0.08%. Concerning the corona pass... Under 50 with no underlying illnesses, with no comorbidities? Um, that's a global, even that's a global figure. So even people with underlying conditions are in okay. this global figure. As for such, the, the transmit concerning the transmission has been proven over and over again. Last week, a few other studies appeared in which they compared 68 countries and 2,947 counties in the US. And what they saw was that there was no significance whatsoever in developing COVID-19 within countries with a low or a high vaccination rate. So there is no difference whatsoever for hospitalization, infections, and mortality. So what's the use of all these green passes, corona passes, you name it, if you can still transmit the virus as a vaccinated, if there is no difference in viral load? And that's what I already questioned in February 2021, in which I stated this is, this is absolute bollocks. This is basic virology. You know, this is the first lesson you ever get if you start talking about viruses. You have mutating viruses and you have non-mutating or, let's say, hardly ever mutating viruses. And it's a total different perspective. And then they start shouting, yeah, but polio, we eradicated polio with a vaccine. We can't compare with polio. Because well, that's the thing that I'm curious about. Let's say we go back in time three or four years ago with the data we have right now. How do you think people would have dealt with it? Let's, let's look at it as a, maybe a more severe flu or a new virus. Like, 
what would have been the normal way of dealing with this, with the data we have right now? With the data, data we have right now? Yes. But that's difficult, you know? They started mm. off with a blank page. Now we have a lot of data. Mm. I think the best thing you can do and what we have to get back to is the fact that in August 2020, we had the first decent studies on the IFR, the infection mm -hmm. fatality rate. Back then already, we knew it was about 0.3 on a global scale. And then that was, that was the moment I proposed my open letter to have a focused protection. Which is your reverse lockdown. Maybe you could explain a bit. Lockdown, what focused yeah. protection. Because back then, when I saw the figures, I knew now we can set forward a good protocol. Protocol, 30% of the people are vulnerable and have underlying diseases. The healthy population, 70%, we have to teach them how to handle people with underlying diseases, how to get in contact with them in a safe manner. We could have taken this in a totally different uh, direction. And then it's quite ethical, uh, ethically responsible to vaccinate 30% with underlying, uh, um, underlying diseases. The 70% we could have released within society. Within two, three months, we would have had some kind, it's not a herd immunity, but every, everyone would have got in touch somehow with the virus, developed some basic immunity on an individual, individual level, and the 30% could have been vaccinated without a problem. And then this problem would already be far behind us. What we did now was push away the virus for a year and a half, Nobody could get in touch with the virus. And then we waited on the vaccines. But the vaccines are based on the, pre on the, the first stem from Wuhan. Now we are one year and a half further on the road, and we have 40,000 mutations. So now we're going to combat the Delta variant, which is 40,000 mutations further on from the start with the original wild stem Wuhan virus. And we're combating it with an old vaccine. So, of course, there's no efficiency. Please, please, please correct me in what I'm going to say right now. I'm looking for analogies that make sense, right? So I'm going to use this analogy, but correct certain things that I'm not using right here. I use the analogy of traditional vaccines. Let's say an enemy approaches. It's a... Uh, uh, not to be racist, but just to use it as an analogy. Let's say it's something brown with a spear. And you're with your castle. You look over and you see something brown with a spear approaching. Then you have your soldiers inside the castle who are like training. They see, okay, we need a sword. We need a shield. We're going to defeat that one brown thing with a spear. So you defeat it. You know how to handle it in real time. And then later an army comes of brown things with a spear. And then you can defeat it because your soldiers are trained. You know, they have swords. They have shields. They can in real time conquer the enemy. How I, and please, I'm trying to have like a, an analogy that makes sense. An mRNA vaccine is more like a runner with a message that goes to the center of the castle. The weapon factory starts like shooting shields and swords. So at the first wave, maybe it can defeat it, but then it adapts, the, the, the virus uh, adapts. And maybe the next time, instead of something brown with a spear, there will be like a person with a harness and a shotgun coming. And then the soldiers, they haven't ever trained. There's like lazy, fat soldiers just sitting there, you know, and maybe this is, this is a thing that could happen. This is a complete hypothesis. Then your weapon factory is going to look at, okay, what is the brown thing with a spear? And since those soldiers have been uh, lazy and 
in the sun, they may be in bronze, you know, the little bit browner, so they could start shooting at your own soldiers and your whole protection immune system hasn't had a real-time interaction with the environment, hasn't been trained, and is always acting on that old message that you got six months ago, but it can be outdated. Probably I'm making a lot of bad analogies here, but that is a bit of a difference I'm trying to paint between the traditional ones, your immune system, and then the messenger RNA vaccines that are being used right now. I wouldn't say the mRNA, mRNA vaccines as such as the only problem. It's the same with the vector-based vaccines. If you develop it upon a stem of one year and a half ago, it's correct what you say, the soldiers won't recognize the same enemy or an enemy that comes forward with another gear or another pistol or another kind of ammunition. That's for sure. But it's not only with mRNA, it's the same thing with the, with the vector-based vaccines. But where we have to be careful is that with the classic or non-mutating viruses, like we know polio, smallpox, mm -hmm. it's quite easy to, to get it under control with vaccines. Why? They never change their gear. They never change their harness. They never change their ammunition. They already know what weapon they're going to carry and which defense. So, okay, we just that's have to use this. And it's that's yeah. what we call sterile immunity. Mm. This is what I questioned in February 21, in which I stated to Professor Van Damme in the uh, debate on national television that we can't get this sorted out with the vaccine because we had a mutating virus that kept changing harness. Uh, ammunition all the time. So, and now what we did is waited upon a year and a half before the vaccines came to the market, but based on one weaponry, one harness, and one kind of shotgun. Yeah, one description of the enemy, like, I don't know, six months, a year, a year and a half ago, and then you give that message instead of the soldier looking over the castle, seeing the enemy in real time, developing a real-time unique solution based on right. your castle and your soldiers, your I immune system. From the beginning, try give the people the opportunity to get infected with the latest stem. If we did it from the beginning, as soon as we knew that the infection fatality rate was low enough, and we set of virus free upon, amongst the population, the death toll will be lower. And can it also not be that when you keep on being attacked and then these messengers come and then the weapons factory starts shooting, isn't there a chance when this has to happen like every six months that those soldiers are so freaking lazy and fat that even you have those brown guys with a spear or some lower deadly thing, they're so lazy, they're so ineffective, they haven't trained anymore that you just have to keep on recharging your weapon factory from the outside because you can't rely on your own soldiers anymore. That's what we did with influenza. Every six months, there was a kind of a, a little outbreak of influenza. And we got in touch with it. So every that time we got in touch with the newest stem or the newest mm. mutation, we got an update. And it's like a computer. It's what I always say. It's like a computer. If you always have the latest update, you're protected. And now we were pushed away for a year and a half, and now we're attacking, yeah, like we said before, eh, with the, with, we're trying to attack something which we're not trained for anymore because yeah, it's a totally different ballgame we're playing now. And then you get these kind of studies that get published, li like last week in The Lancet, there was a study published which claimed that 90% of the vaccines are still, 90% uh, of mm. the Pfizer vaccine is still efficient now. Well, these kind of studies, are you being used by the experts? But what do these studies intrins intrinsically mean? They mean that if we look at the rough data, 
And that's what they always do. They take data from a population and they see how many percent of the people are vaccinated. And in this time frame, how many people did get hospital hospitalized, infected and died? And then they make a statistical analysis and then they say, well, look, there's so little people, a few people getting into hospitals and, and dying, so the vaccines are efficient. What everybody tends to forget is one major thing. The season? <laughs> no, not only the season, the virus itself. Mm. The Delta variant is two and a half times less virulent than alpha and beta. So is you, it mean, the, you mean the Indian variant, which is called Indian variant, until India said, like, we don't know about that variant. <laughs> and then they, I mean, no, obviously, they were right. You know, the thing is, they, they discovered this variant in India. And that's where it was, the, the Indian professors discovered this variant. And that's where all the world said it's an Indian variant that you cannot prove. Probably. One thing that I have, and that's that's questionable, because open, please enlighten me from your perspective and the data that you have. Some people say this kind of virus, the COVID-19, it actually hasn't been isolated yet. No, that's not true either. There are so many. A, a few weeks ago, there was a, a Belgian mayor who presented $1 million for the person who could uh, uh, prove that uh, the virus was isolated. So, so suddenly somebody came up to me on a message through Messenger and said, look at this. Uh, because it's not been isolated. So I mm. sent him a few studies that already isolated the virus. I said, now you can go and claim the $1 million. Yeah, because that's a trap sometimes, right? That, okay, now accept everything from people who question everything. Uh, you got to stay critical when it comes down to this. You got to stay critical. That's one, two, it, been, it has been isolated. And if it wasn't isolated, it was impossible to create a vaccine. Well, one thing, this is again, and please correct me, the mRNA vaccine, for me, it's kind of crazy, the system. Your body produces the enemy and fights the enemy. Mm -hmm. That seems like something crazy to do. Well, uh, I'm still not sure if this was the best strategy. Because it's a spike protein that you release, right? And there were often they said like there's no negative effects or potential negative things about the spike protein. Also a huge question mark, especially in the long term, right? Am I correct in stating that your body produces then the enemy and then it starts fighting the enemy? Yeah, that's a, a good analogy, yeah. And the thing is, we now know in the meantime, yesterday I even saw one of our Belgian professors still stating that the spike proteins, which you create by putting the, the, the inoculation in the deltoid muscle, stays local. It's already been proven that it doesn't stay locally. It travels throughout the whole body. There has also been a, a leaked report, well leaked, it has to say, PDMA in Japan, which is the, the health official, officials department of Japan, published the, the, the biodiversity data from Pfizer. They put them online in the, 48, in the 48, first 48 hours of testing, they already saw that the mRNA, uh, MR was being, uh, the spike proteins were located in the testis, in the womb of the women. Ovaries, uh, right? I read stories that some of these ovary, spike proteins, liver, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, liver even passed the brain barrier, the blood brain barrier. So, and now still experts are keep, keep claiming that it's not, they're not Why true. is that potentially dangerous to enlighten people? That's hard to say. We, we don't know what happens on, in the, on the mid or long term. We still don't know. But what's a concern being put forward by specialists who are more specialized in this matter than I am is that this might create some what we call plaques. Plaques is like chalk uh, mm -hmm. deposits like you see in Alzheimer's disease in the brain. That These kind of protein plaques will appear in the liver, 
in the testis, in the ovaria. And this might potentially lead to fertility problems if you look at the organs. Yeah. So we don't know because the studies were stopped after 48 hours. And we saw in between 5 and 10% of the animals having these kind of protein uh, deposits. So what happens after 48 hours? I don't know. Nobody. I don't know if you also saw the studies about Pfizer recommending not to have, uh, not to go to have a baby after the second inoculation within like 28 days. I don't know if it was true or not. Somebody asked questions to ask you and they said like, yeah, they, they recommend of not going for a baby just uh, 28 days after the second jab and that Pfizer recommended it. Yeah, it's true. They they changed a bit, of course. Not not only to consider, we we see an higher amount of of miscarriages and myocarditis, right? That seems to be something that also pericarditis, epicarditis are now already being mentioned by Moderna and Pfizer in their newest outline of their potential risks. Yeah. Well, I read some studies about the side effects, and they are severely underreported and you have the VAERS system in like America. And I read that, I don't know, in X months of the COVID vaccines, you had as much side effects as, I don't know, all vaccines combined the last 10 or 15 years. I, what you're referring to is not a virus, but a ultra vigilance, the, the European system. And uh, one of the parliament members of the European parliament from Germany took a dive into the data Mm-hmm. And he posed a question in the European Parliament, stating indeed that he discovered that we had more uh, fatalities now with eight months of vaccination uh, amongst European population than we, we had with, within 20 years combined to all vaccines ever released on the European market together. And so he immediately asked to stop the vaccinations just mm-hmm. until we know what's going on and that there would be some kind of evaluation process being implemented to check upon the safety of these uh, vaccines. And we see a lot of adverse responses. I think the last uh, data I saw were about 30,000 fatalities that have been taken into account by the Udra Vigilance. So they only take into account these in which they think might be a causal link between the vaccines and the mortality that appeared. So, and as you said correctly, only one to 10% and these this are data we know from previous studies with other vaccines and other um, um, medicines ever reaching the market. Only 1% to 10% of the adverse effects are being put forward by doctors towards the official institutes. So if the 30,000 best case is within the 10% frame, then this would mean that possibly 300,000 people already died from the vaccines within Europe. If we go for the worst case scenario and we and only 1% has, has, has been put forward, then we talk about 3 million people. Yeah, when you just take this into account of having so many vaccine deaths, as much as 20 uh, years of other vaccines combined, and you look at the mortality rate right now, infection fatality rate, which is around the flu, then this could only happen because there are exceptions right now that I also saw with the WHO. It changed three definitions on that official side. Herd immunity, vaccines, and there's a third one. I don't know what it was, that it also was like changed. So just change the definition and now we can actually do it. While in the past, I think when you give this data, probably they wouldn't be able to keep on forcing people to get vaccinated, looking at how severe is it, how, how fatal is it, you know, and how many potential side effects does it have? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the third one you mentioned was the epidemiological limit. Normally, it, 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 now it's, it's been stated that if you have if you reach more than five percent, then you can. They talk about a pandemic. But if I'm not mistaken, yes. in the past, it, it the definition of pandemic, yes, of the pandemic has changed. Huh? Yeah. One thing that uh, also worries me is there's also gymnastics being played sometimes by, hey, you're fully vaccinated after two weeks after the second jab. So that means when the hospital is full of unvaccinated people, some people are in the hospital after the second jab and they are labeled as unvaccinated because it happens just right after the second jab. Yeah, yeah, correct. And some that's like, maybe it's not long enough. Oh, it can be the jab. So there's also some juggling there with the interpretation of what counts as side effects, COVID deaths, vaccine deaths. It's currently being studied. We're trying to find out uh, with a few scientists now, we're putting together the data we have. There are very few transparent data available within Europe. So we have to push and shove to find the right data to work upon. And let's say that the majority of the complications after a vaccine or will present themselves within a month time after the vaccine, within a month's time. What we are a bit scared of now is if the third vaccine, the booster shot, is being pushed forward and will be pushed forward, that this might lead to an exponential rise of, and certainly with the mRNA, spike proteins being produced in the body. And this might, as you said before, you produce it within the enemy within your body to attack the same enemy. And this might, simplistically said, lead to autoimmune diseases. And this is not my field. Uh, I'm just a public health generalist. Yeah, yeah. But immunologists I talk to also, they don't want to come forward, but they do have the same concerns, you know, and they do put forward these kind of concerns that this might lead to much more, many more problems than we already have. Yeah. It's like creating a terrorist group to then fight a terrorist group and then the terrorist group starts attacking you. Yeah, indeed. You're sponsoring the, the counterpart. It's like the horse, the Trojan horse. Eh? Yeah. Could you explain some studies that I read about mRNA vaccines and they did it on ferrets and then they were like huge issues with the second variant or whatever? Like, correct me if I'm wrong and I have wrong information, right? But do you know anything about these studies? Yeah, it's not solely with mRNA, but what they, what they saw previously was with MERS, SARS and RSV. Those three have the same genomic structure as the current SARS-CoV-2. And what they did in the past was trying to find a vaccine for these three. And what happened was, then they studied it correctly within a range of five to seven years, but none of the animals survived. And why? Was it immune system? Did they have a certain yeah. defect? There is, there is, yeah. And, and, and this has been proven once again by the Radboud University in Holland, which we are, hardly can put away as a bad university has published a paper in which they found that mRNA is responsible for changing the immune responses in your body. Moreover, leading to a more aggressive attack towards what we call candida, and candidas are something we live with. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a symbiotic, symbiotic pathogen in, in our body. We have it in our mouth, you know, you name it. Normally, we don't have any problems with it, but people developing these kind of fungi, candida, the response of the body is, exager is ex exaggerating at that time, and people develop a, a huge amount of these fungi then. 
On the other hand, they saw that bacterial infections are suppressed by the immune system. Uh, the, the immune system is suppressed to respond on bacterial infections. And this is a potential big problem because if you get COVID-19, we all know major problem is the development of endotelitis within also the lungs. So you become very vulnerable. And if you then get a sur, a sur infection or a secondary infection with a bacteria, your immune system isn't even capable of responding anymore on the bacterial infection. So you possibly die cer with certainty. The third thing they found was that the uh, TNF alpha, which stands for tumor necrotic factor, is something we have in our body that helps us prevent to develop cancers. This is being suppressed as well. So now a lot of, well, let's say dissident immunologists are worried and say, okay, this might, these, these mRNA vaccines might lead to an enhancement of developing uh, cancers. Even more so, people who already had cancer might uh, develop it again. And these are concerns that nobody takes into account. And these things have been published. Because I have a public health expert here, I would love for you to guide me through the efficacy, efficiency of these things, the PCR tests, asymptomatic spread, the masks, the vaccine, the lockdown. Knowing now, like 18 months into it, could you go over these and also maybe give a little bit of commentary, like how useful you still think it is to focus on this and if it's still true that it has an effect or what kind of effect? Maybe starting first from the test then going to asymptomatic spreads, masks, and then the vaccine lockdown. Start with the test. Okay. I don't think it's a big secret anymore. The PCR test is a vulnerable test. Yeah, It has been improved during the crisis. They developed some new, more rigid tests. But even so, we always see that the false positive results are always higher than the false negative. And this remains a problem. It's not because you test positive that you are, you have viral load and the viral load is what you need to transmit it to others. So it remains a very vulnerable thing. What was your second question? The second one you wanted to... Asymptomatic spread. Well, asymptomatic spread. In the beginning, the first studies said that the asymptomatic spread was nearly impossible. Now we know it's possible, but the viral load is so low that it's very difficult to, if you transmit the virus, it's very difficult that the other person would get severe, the severe disease because everything depends on the viral load. And as the viral load is low, these people can get an immune response, which is good for the system without developing a severe form. But it's still limited. You know, asymptomatic spread is still limited, but it's possible. Regarding the tests, why do you have to push it so deep down the nose? And what is like the difference between antigen test or the PCR test? Like, why can't they just have a swab of saliva and then test it? What I think was effective with a lot of viruses. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> okay, you don't have an answer to it. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, of course I do have an answer. The further you go through the through the, the skull. Uh, and you end up at what we call the etmoid uh, uh, bone. That's that what basically splits the front half of your of your uh, face with the back half, in which contains your brain. Okay, mm -hmm. 
The further you can go, the more chance you have on retrieving something. It's easy as that. So if you really want to find something that hardly is available in your head, namely the, the, the remains of a virus, yeah, and you shove it around everywhere, then the, the potential that you find it is bigger than you just when you just go behind your cheek or just in the front of the nose. So it, it seemed to be that they used this system or implemented this system to get as much as many infections as possible because it's of no use. If you have a, a really a decent viral load, then you will already find it in the in the beginning of your nose or in the beginning of your cheek. So you, it, it's it's of no use going. Yeah, you have that meme like we need to push something so deep down our nose for something that is super contagious and 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 spreads a lot. Like, why do I have to stick it so deep if it's so contagious? It's not like people are getting so far down my face that they get you know to the top of my nose. Also, maybe something is the replication rate, right? Because in a way, you magnify and you zoom in and you zoom in. Carrie Mullis, the inventor, said like. It almost makes me become a Buddhist to say that everything is related with everything because if I zoom in deep enough, I, I can find almost an interconnection with everything. Do you know any data about what they changed in terms of like 30, 45 or whatever kind of replication zoom in rate that they used and how they adapted it? The cycle thresholds. Yeah. The only thing I know is that the CDC in the US said, okay, you have to stop at 27 to 30 because if you go further, you get a lot of false positives. The same was published in a report of the, C of the ECDC, the European Center for Disease Control. But the thing is, we still don't know what happens in the labs. And the labs are sponsored by the government. So the only thing we have nowadays, even in the public health uh, departments don't want to communicate about these. Uh, they are not transparent in telling us if the labs are using which cycles they are using. We don't. We just don't know. Sometimes we get a picture from somebody in in a lab, and it takes a picture and then sends it sends it to us, and then you see forty two, and then you say, okay, here we go again. So there's no transparency whatsoever. On to the next thing: masks, face masks. There was a study published December twenty twenty, which is called the Cochrane Review. So we have the, the scientific, what we call the, sci the, the, the science pyramid. And the top of the science pyramid is meta-analysis as most secure, scientific, scrutinized evidence. But on top of that is another league, which is called Cochrane Reviews. Why? Because the methodology of these meta-analysis is so strict mm -hmm. and is so in-depth and it takes a lot of people to work upon this for a long time to get a decent analysis. Only a few Cochrane reviews a year as such come forward because it's a huge, huge uh, amount of work for the researchers. It was published December 2020 and they looked at the efficiency of face masks for what they call ELI. ELI stands for influenza-like illnesses. And they explicitly didn't take any research into account around COVID-19 because then they would get in trouble. They did it very smart. And what they did was, we looked at all kinds of viruses ranging from 20 to 100 nanometers. Now, every scientist 
who knows something about COVID-19 knows this, these COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 has more or less the same size. What was the bottom line? That it has 0.0 effect to wear a face mask. So if it doesn't work for viruses with the size of 20 to 100 milli, um, nanometers, it won't uh, work with SARS either because the SARS-CoV-2 has the same size, more or less. It's also between 50 and uh, sometimes up to 400 nanometers, but the most ranges of the uh, virus around is in the same size range as an influenza. So in most cases, it doesn't help at all. And are there any negative effects known from wearing yeah. masks? There are a lot of studies publishing uh, problems with the teeth, uh, with uh, skin rashes, uh, infections in the skin, on the skin, certainly for people having to wear it all day, eight hours, 10 hours a day, like stewardesses, like people working in healthcare themselves that get all kinds of skin rashes, uh, infections, acne, you name it. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, not only that, there are also some studies that claim that there is a, pro a problem also with self-infection because what you have a lot of bacteria in your mouth, you breathe them out constantly for mm -hmm. eight hours, they form a layer within the face mask, you start breathing it in again, but it's like a Petri scale, you know, you, yeah. you push out all your bacteria, they, they even interact with each other there. It's humid and warm, so they can multiply like crazy. And then you have to breathe them in for eight hours. Of course, this cannot be very healthy. Yeah, yeah and with your hands, you touch a lot of things. So when you touch the mask, then when it accumulates in the front of your face, then you can also spread it more. We already talked something about vaccines and knowing now what we know about vaccines. Uh, what have you seen about data from different countries in terms of like the vaccination rate, the effectiveness, etc.? Maybe you can give some examples of... I'm currently working upon a new analysis. Uh, I published one, I think, 18th of August, in which I compared uh, countries with a vaccination rate above 60% with countries having a vaccination rate lower than 15%. And the mortality for between the two was in between zero and six persons per million. There was no difference to be found, basically, between the low vaccinated countries and the high vaccinated countries. Now, today, I was working upon a new analysis in which I compared the plus 75 vaccination rate countries with below 30. Can't see any difference. I heard some stories. I mean, of course, you can't say this for the whole world, but that wasn't much or there was no over mortality in other countries in 2020? That I can't say for the whole, for globally in the world. Looking at the data we have from Euromomo within Europe, I can tell you that there was an all cause excess debt in 2020 compared mm. to 2019. But what makes me very worried is that up until today, we see a 100% rise again in 21. Although few people are hospitalized at the moment and few people get killed by the virus, we already see a 100% rise in all excess deaths between 21 and 2020. So where are these people dying from? Well, I often see that the science has to adapt to the narrative and not the narrative to the science. Because there's some things right now with Israel, one of the most vaccinated countries in the world, third or fourth shot, and we still see the rise of COVID cases and going for the third, fourth or the fifth. So yeah. this is the main thing also that is not there and it's very clear. 
what is the success metric? What is the metric of success? That's that's the whole point. Yeah, that's a very good question. Last week, I was invited by the Malaysian government. No, not the government, by the health experts from Malaysia who advised the government. And I must say, it was very nice to have a talk with them. They were very open. It was the first time I encountered a real debate between pros and cons. There was also a professor from Australia, someone from India, and someone from Iran present. And the Malaysian health expert invited us, myself for Europe, to talk about the way we perceive the whole situation. Now, the country has a vaccination rate of 94.2%. Okay? And I looked at their curves before the meeting. And what did, what did I saw? Since the beginning of the crisis in Malaysia, the infection, the, the hospitalizations, and the mortality was basically close to zero all the time. They started vaccinating at February 24th, and now they have 300 deaths a day. I said to them, look at your own data. What I saw the meme, they flattened the curve, but in the wrong direction, not horizontally, but vertically. Yeah. I said, look at your own data. What does this tell you? They didn't know themselves. They didn't look at the data. And I was surprised, this is no joke. That, that, and I don't only see it in Malaysia, I can't blame the, the, these health experts, I see it everywhere. A lot of these advisors for governments aren't aware of the latest data, aren't aware of, of the latest publications being put forward in, in scientific magazines. And that was one of the biggest surprise I, surprises I have faced the last six months. Because not, isn't this weird? You as a health expert, isn't it, I don't know if the term is endemic or the, the virus becomes less virulent, virulent or, or less strong and it diminishes combined with like herd immunity. So normally a virus, once it goes to the population, it goes down automatically. That's what we see now. That's what, uh, that's what that we see that uh, the, if you look at the UK is basically the only country that is um, quite transparent. Well, up until last week. Suddenly, something changed there as well. But up until last week, they were very transparent about their data. And what you could see was that the Delta variant was two and a half times less mortal than Alpha and Beta. And that's why I said, uh, we previously talked about the Lancet study that now claims that 90% efficiency from the Pfizer vaccine, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you don't take into account the lower virulence or the, 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 the mortality that is being caused by the newest variant, in this case, the Delta variant, then these studies are worthless. Because is it the vaccine that is working proficiently or is it basically just the virus that became endemic in the last five, six months? And that, that is the explanation that we have so few hospitalizations and people dying from the virus. And if you compare the low with the high vaccinated countries, you don't see a difference. So the only explanation is, in my opinion, that the virus has become endemic in the last few months and that the vaccines don't contribute at all due to the fact we already know for, from different studies that there is an immune evasion, an immune escape from the vaccines towards the Delta variant. So but the actually, only possible explanation is, that we see now is that we are reaching an endemic course. On the other hand, we see a rise every time they put a booster in people's arm. So this must set people to think, you know? Well, normally that is what I'm thinking. Like imagine a scenario where they keep on blaming the unvaccinated people that it still spreads. Let's, you have, let's say you have like 90, 95%. Are you still going to keep the rhetoric like every six months, like just a booster shot, just a booster shot because the unvaccinated people spread it, else it would no, be gone? Like The other way around, a study by Gazit et al. from Israel. 
vaccinated have 13 times more breakthrough infections compared to natural infections with the Delta variant. Another study in Oxford by Powell et al. states, and I read because I wrote it down, mm. vaccinated people have a sevenfold increased risk for symptomatic disease. Viral load is the same in vaccinated and non-vaccinated groups. So who is spreading what here? If you have 13-fold of breakthrough infections within the vaccinated population, who is making who sick? Well, that's also the thing that I ask myself, like, okay, if it is about health, why can't people who have a QR code and still can spread or are sick, they're like free and they can still do whatever they want and still spread the virus. So what's the priority here, health or, or just a QR app? And then it doesn't matter anymore how sick you are and, and, and why you spread it. Then it doesn't seem to be a priority anymore. That's what I questioned already in February. This is, this is of no use to use these kind of measures or, or control mechanisms unless it hasn't got anything anything to do anymore with the virus, which is possible as well. But then they, then they use or misuse or abuse the current situation to implement a control system instead of working upon the real health issue. Sam, what is the chances that you have COVID and that you're healthy and you would need to get a QR code to get somewhere, but you can spread it? What is the fact that you are seriously ill and can spread it, but you don't notice it? Is that high that you can have COVID, like you have COVID, but the symptoms are like mild and you can still spread it? Because that's an argument that's being used a lot. Like, yes, normally people are healthy and they have to, you know, prove that they're sick. It's the other way around that they have to do it. So what are the chances of me suddenly getting COVID and I just go to my coffee bar and chilling? You know, there's some people close to me, but not super close. And that I would still spread it to those other people. It's possible. Due to the fact that the Delta variant is less virulent in comparison to the beta and the alpha variant, it's possible for you to, ca to catch the, the COVID flu and then feel mild symptoms or light symptoms like some throat ache and you don't, you're not worried and you go to your coffee bar, you have a QR code because you're vaccinated. Mm. But if you look at the studies, you have 13 times more breakthrough infections, but the most vulnerable thing, you being vaccinated is you have a sevenfold increased risk for symptomatic disease. So you will develop these symptoms and you go in your coffee bar, but you're vaccinated. So you have your QR code. So you can go in and spread the disease towards all the rest. Basically, the unvaccinated people become, well, you become a risk to them. Well, this is the thing. They say that uh, the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID or spreading COVID, but it reduces the symptoms. First, want to check with you if that's true or not. But that would make me think that I have to be more afraid of a vaccinated person who would still have COVID and can infect me without knowing that the person has it. Because if I would have mild to average or heavy symptoms, I would just stay at home, drink tea, and I wouldn't go outside. I, I would spread it less than people who just don't know this, that they have symptoms because it's milder to a vaccine, if that's true, right? I don't know if that statement is actually true. Yeah, yeah, it's basically correct. And the thing is, and in, in, if you look at all this in hindsight, what was the major and the most efficient method to keep people from spreading it towards someone else? And we did it in the past for tens and tens of years. If you're sick, you just don't go to work. And mm -hmm. if you're sick, you keep your, or your child is sick, you keep it at home and you don't send it to school. And now, People with a QR code or a green pass or whatever, they say, yeah, well, I'm vaccinated. I feel sick, but I can go anywhere I want. 
So it changes the mindset of people and people start to think, well, I'm safe because I have a green pass, even if they're not safe. And then they, maybe they start neglecting the symptoms they have. How light they are doesn't matter because a viral load may become the same, may be the same as with somebody who has a severe form and they go and spread around. And that's what I'm wondering now, because it's very strange that all European, a lot of your Scandinavian countries now opened up everything. No measures anymore. Same thing we see in Belgium. And I wonder why. At this period. Very strange. <laughs> Two weeks ago, everything opened up. My, my, kids wanted, my kids, my son is 18, my daughter is 17, and they wanted, they wanted to go out. And I said, look, we're going out together. And we went to a club in Leuven, it's no joke. And we're pushed together like, a, you know, like a sardines in a box. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, two days ago, everybody was going to die from COVID. And now suddenly you can be pushed together in a sweaty, damp environment, listening to loud music, dancing your way around. Well, dancing was impossible yeah. because everybody was pu pushed together yeah. like sardines in a can. And the next day I went to my hairdresser. And on Saturday, my hairdresser said, yeah, you still have to wear a face mask or I get a fine. And I was like, okay, that all makes sense, doesn't it? So I was alone with my hairdresser, oh, totally alone with my hairdresser in his saloon. And I, he has, had to wear a face mask and I had to wear it. I'm going to ask you a controversial question, right? If you have a virus with a mortality rate of, let's say, 99. let's make it 0.15% uh, at 85%, and you look at this, would it be weird for me to say like, okay, let's continue life as normal? No. That's what I said from day one. The day because I it seems like, you don't you care about lives? But I'm just looking like, yes, it's, it, it's, it's <laughs> sad that so much people die, of course. But I'm like, yeah, this is nothing out of the ordinary to make extreme measures. Because just in the end, one of the most important questions is, and I'm not denying, some people say like the, the, they need a longer time to recover from COVID compared with the flu. And they can have some more you know, recovery time. But when I look at the deaths and the mortality rate, I'm kind of like, should we actually, knowing these measures, right, these numbers right now, should we actually take any measures? If we have to be mindful of all our resources, focus, money, etc., is this actually still necessary looking at this mortality rate? No. My opinion, not. No. It depends what you want as a society. You can choose, and it's, a, it's an ethical debate, it's, and, and, and maybe we should have this debate. We never looked at this with influenza either. We had 1 million mm -hmm. people globally dying from influenza every year, between six, 650,000 and a million, depending on if it was a pandemic season or not. But anyway, those are probably underestimations because never was tested so profoundly as we did with SARS-CoV-2. But okay, keep aside, okay, let's say 1 million a year. We lose 65 million people a year on non-communicable diseases, strokes, heart attacks, Everything that has to do with our Western lifestyle. Okay? So let's make this a, a societal, ethical discussion. Mm -hmm. If we want to obtain the zero risk, then we have to start banning McDonald's now, get rid of Pepsi, all processed foods, get rid of cars, because they're polluting the air and we are jogging and doing sports exercises in the outdoors. So that's not healthy either. 
So if we're consequent, we have to put all these things into a ban as well. Are we willing to do so? It's, an, it's a societal discussion. Yeah? The same with the virus. You can, you can say, okay, we, we, we lose uh, 2 million people a year with COVID, two, two and a half. Okay, rates are a bit higher. While the flu doesn't exist. <clears throat> uh, indeed, that's gone as well. But okay, that's uh, virologically speaking, it's it's possible. You know, okay. if, if one virus as is dominant, we also always see that other viruses become more dormant. Mm. So okay. that's not not that's virologically possible. But anyway, what do we want? If we want a zero risk uh, society, then that that can be an option we choose for as a society, and then we all live like Michael Jackson used to live in a. Uh, in a uh, oxygen cage, uh, wearing face masks all the time, not getting in touch with other people directly or physically, this can be an option. Then we don't have an immune system either anymore. But okay, that's that's maybe an option that we can opt for that if we want. This this is a societal ethical discussion. Are we willing to live together? Are we still willing to live together with the idea that everybody's mortal and that uh, anyone in a bad day can get infected by any pathogen around? Then are we still willing to face that you know are we still willing to 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 live with that in our lives yeah or do we want to pre uh, proceed towards a zero risk society it's an ethical discussion yeah and do we want to put the power in uh, people their shoes their personal responsibility their lifestyle and preventing if it really is about preventing hospitalizations reducing illness reducing deaths okay let's uh, have sam present all the that's that there are an illnesses and let's show it in terms of percentage and then see how we can use our resources in the most effective way. And when you look at the amount of people dying from cancer, people dying from heart strokes and other illnesses, we just look at like, okay, we have these limited resources and money. How can we spend it that we reduce illness, we reduce deaths and then see how to best spend the money. Plus, I think lifestyle illnesses is putting the power in people their own hands, and it will also help them fight COVID better. Natural immunity is seven, eight times better than it. So it also protects people themselves and other people for a longer period of time. So that seems like a pragmatic and reasonable approach when you really want to tackle the issue and have a broad approach. But I saw the motion of Wilders in the Netherlands, and he actually put a motion there in the parliament. And he said, we should dramatically increase the hospital beds. And the majority parties in the Netherlands said, no. So you and the news keep on talking about the hospitals will be overrun. And then when there is a, no, a motion to actually change things and think long-term how to prepare for this, you actually keep the crisis intact. The nurses who were the heroes last year, less nurses right now who don't want to go with these measures, less people in the hospitals, more pressure on it. So I see more crisis being created and less constructive long-term solutions purposely being made by certain par parties and politicians. And we know by we know from the decades of studies that have been published around public and global health that the best way to keep your resources aligned is to have a health promotion strategy and not it's preventative measures and not facing the problem when it's too late. And that's what we have been doing in this biomedical system for decades now. The whole biomedical approach from, from doctors, hospitals has been Wait until it goes totally a walk, and then we are there to solve the problem. No, we can prevent a, a lot of these problems by informing people, by putting forward some other protocols that teach people to take responsibility again for their own health 
which we, what we call in change behavior, internal and external locus of control. People nowadays are so used of putting their problems on the table, giving it towards the doctor, bringing it uh, to the doctor and say, you solve my problem. And what does he do? He just, instead of saying to you, you have possible heart issues and you have a high rate of cholesterol, instead of telling these people, look, we're going to work upon a better lifestyle mm -hmm. by exercises, exercising, healthful, healthy food, you name it. No, we're just mm -hmm. going to shove a pill in your mouth. So the public says, okay, I'm saved by the pill so I can keep eating hamburgers. And yeah, I worked in healthcare as a, as, a, as a healthcare coordinator for eight years and uh, I got totally burned out by how I was treated because I basically was a representative of organizations of first aid healthcare. And it was about how to have a meeting about a meeting and let's make a meeting report to have a meeting and then have another meeting. And it was just basically the status quo. It was more politics than trying to change people. And there's not a lot of money to be made by preventing things. I also heard from, from Jeff Hubergs. I don't know how it much is, but the vast majority of the money is being spent on the last year or last years of somebody their life. Correct. Yeah. And then you have limited resources and it's not that I don't care about these people, but you want to use it in a way like how you can save or prevent certain things and the largest amount of... In the long run, you always gain a lot of profit financially by using health promotion strategies. In the short run, okay, that's true. The, the most efficient system is the current system. But it costs more in the long run. It always has been and it always will be. And if you know that biomedical approaches we use nowadays, like hospitals, doctors, only add for 10% to your total health, and 90% is dependent on social and health determinants. So what should the focus be, the 10% or the 90%? Well, I know something that what if doctors would be paid for keeping patients healthy? <laughs> they would be rich. If they would pursue that direction, they would be rich. Yeah. Even more than what they earn today. Yeah. I know last time you also had an emotional response with uh, your um, daughter, I think, having like agoraphobia from uh, going to places with a lot of people. Some things that I, I, I completely think is a false choice and it hasn't happened before. I also think that they're... It's almost like communism because in the communist manifesto, you also say like, yeah, we take over the nuclear family. We go and raise kids ourselves and tell them what to do. And young people, their brain, their frontal cortex, their impulse control is only developed when they're 25. And now suddenly children can just decide or there's like, it's, it's really actually super creepy. There can be like a vaccination cool van and you can try to protect them but inform them to not go there. But in one weak moment or they want to go to a party, they do it anyway. This is a false choice. Like it's freedom, it's their choice. When they've only seen one side of the narrative, they're not looking at the data, the research, alternative channels, and they're being other channels are being censored or being silenced. That is a false choice. They have a lot of social pressure. They want to hang out with their friends. They want to go to a festival and now say, because some parents say like, yeah, She's 18, she's 16, it's her choice. But is it really based on the limited amount of information that they get, which is clearly only showing one side? Psychological pressure. And it's be, you as a sociologist know that as yeah. well, how important it is as a youngster to develop your social interactions. And my daughter is in the same, in the same league currently. She's still not vaccinated, but she feels all the pressure, you know? 
she feels that she can't develop her own life anymore if she don't get if she doesn't get vaccinated. So the peer pressure becomes so huge, and it's not a peer pressure as such. It's just a feeling of being left out that makes it makes her so vulnerable at the moment. And she has still got problems with agoraphobia, as I told you last week. We went out to Leuven. After one hour, she said, "I want to get out of here because it's too much for me. I can't take it anymore." So then we had a drink somewhere on a terrace at ease. So it remains a problem. She's still not through it, and she's still fighting the system in her head by not taking the vaccine. But on the other hand, she's being blocked from basically everything nowadays because. Here in Belgium, every event above 500 people, and of course, if students get together in these big halls, it's more than yeah. 500 people. So you need the QR code. She doesn't have one, so she's not allowed to go to these parties. She's not allowed to go to go to these events, and she feels left out. So I'm not sure if she will be able to keep up with this. You know, it disturbs her very much. She she's very vulnerable at the moment, and. I can understand her if she if she would say to me tomorrow, Dad, it's I'm going to get a vaccine. Then I can understand from her perspective. You know, she's 17. She has to develop. She has to have the opportunity to get out, meet young, young other youngsters, develop a relationship with a guy. You know, mm-hmm. first this this is what needs to happen to have a, a normal life, and this is being taken away from critically youngsters now. I think that's the biggest battle right now. Get them while they're young. Because when you're raised in the social media with the censorship, with the echo chamber, you already had it. Like, oh, I already had it, so it's not new. Oh, they check your privacy. Yeah, but they already do it on your phone. That's like a nonsense argument. Like, yeah, it's bad. And I'm saying it will get worse. And it's like, yeah, but it's already bad. Like, so I might as well move on to the next severe step. I got questions from parents for you. Like, how do you deal with this as a parent? A lot of pressure on the child, on the parents, from other parents towards them, and they can't go to social meetings. What I've always tried to do is just inform them correctly, and I'll leave it up to them. You know, they're not 12 years old. It's still a difference with somebody who's 17 or 18. My son is 18. In, eh? So they're both capable of, of, of some contextual thinking. They know the pros, they know the cons. Don't forget, we're a bit older. We yeah. look at this from our own perspective. Mm-hmm. And our perspective back in when we were young, there was no social media, there was no mobile phone. We look at this now and we, and we see it from our perspective. Youngsters have, been, have grown up with all these social media. For them, it's a totally different ball game. They know from day one that they didn't have privacy and, and they are used to it. You know, they, we still had privacy when we were young, so we can compare. So we are the ones being a bit reluctant and trying to keep them away from and safeguarding privacy. But for youngsters, there is no privacy. They never had it. So in their perspective, it's like, yeah, pff, let's get on with it. The only thing my daughter is worried about is indeed the fact that she starts seeing that this hasn't got anything to do with the virus anymore. Because if she, in her age category, and I'll take the fig- the, the the data, she's below 19, she has 0.002% chance of dying. But on the other hand, the risks of the vaccines are much higher. If you take a a cost-benefit or a risk-benefit analysis, she knows from the data I presented her 
that she has much more risk of getting a complication from the vaccine than she will ever get from the, from, from the disease. So rationally speaking, she knows that it's complete bollocks to take a vaccine. Rationally speaking, she also sees and starts questioning, has this have these approaches still got anything to do with the virus or is it the government that wants to control people? She sees this. But on the other hand, it pushes her away from society. So this must be the hardest thing, hardest thing you can ever have as a youngster at that age to be put before the choice of choosing before, before, for your personal integrity or choosing to still have a life within society. Because I know more people who suffered side effects than actually who, who suffered or who died from COVID. And my heart also bleeds for people who, they got the shot. They got like severe side effects. And then they would have to be forced to take another one. It's like, okay, maybe I'm paralyzed for five days. Maybe I have myocarditis. Maybe I will not be as sick as last time because you can take something without knowing any consequences. But some people already had grave consequences. Damn, like being put for that choice again. I don't know what that must feel like. And it's going to happen and it's happening again. Eh? You know, Israel already started with the third booster. Now in Europe, most countries want to implement a third booster. From two weeks ago, they were talking about everyone above 65. I already said back then, they're going to push it through for the rest. Well, it wasn't true. Well, we're two weeks further up on the road and now they're already suggesting to, go to do it uh, in the total population, eh? the third booster. People now shout, and I see on social media a lot of people who say, okay, I'm in doubt. I have I had two vaccines and mm -hmm. I had some mild, light, whatever side effects, or I don't, or they just plain plainly see and now that they they think this was going to be our road to freedom and it wasn't. So why should I take a third vaccine? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people are starting to think. But on the other hand, if tomorrow they say you will lose your QR code, I'm quite sure that most of them will start will jump the queue again to get the third vaccine, just not to be left out of society. And this is what all social media and technology has created in the last 15 years. Is what I call on oh, what has been called FOMO and the fear of missing out. And we're living in a society where the fear of missing out is hoo hoo. You can't miss anything. Eh? You have to be on a barbecue and an next door event and you have to go everywhere. And a lot of people are in this kind of rat race, social rat race as well. It's not only work environment, but also the, the social freedom has been exploited by, by, by commerce, governments, events, you name it. So there's also fear of missing out on everything that should be leisure you know, considered a leisure. So I'm not sure. I think a lot of people who are doubting now will still go for the third shot. Otherwise, they'll lose their, their QR pass and they will not be, like in Holland, not be allowed to visit museums anymore, the cinemas, the restaurants, you name it. And then the question is, has this got anything to do with the virus or are we implementing some kind of control? I'm not sure. Well, this is also the crazy thing. Like youth, I can remember in the 60s, like free hugs, love, freedom. People at the universities actually standing up for freedom. Uh, enough down with authority, stand up to power. That were the young people. Now it's the people like us with one feet, you know, pre-social media and 80s, 90s, and then the beginning of the millennium. And then these young people like, no, 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 comfort. And there's fear and no hugs. And it's like complete reversal of what's happening. Johnny Rotten 
from the Sex Pistols last week uh, said something quite uh, in the same lines as what you're talking about. Now, he said that it was hard to admit for himself as an extreme leftist to now see that the right-wingers are the ones who yeah. are questioning governments and the left-wingers are the ones who just follow without seeing, with, uh, having their eyes closed. He said it's the world upside down. Well, this is the thing where I have a disagreement with, with Matthias de Smet, who talks a lot about totalitarianism, and I've been reading up a lot about those things recently. He thinks that there was free-floating anxiety and a societal climate, and then always people will try to take advantage of it, of the societal influences, and then it becomes like back and forth something that... But I personally think that some things here are socially engineered. They were created, this societal vacuum of subjectivity, nihilism, addiction to comfort, abolishment of standards when it comes to biological males, females, being white, being proud of your nation, being proud of your heritage, limiting speech, limiting communication. I think that also largely contributed to this free-floating anxiety that Matthias Smet often talks about, which creates a vacuum in which totalitarianism takes it over and provides some structure again, because all those connections has been uprooted, so people have nothing to rely on anymore. So then the structure, judgmental, father or mother, totalitarian state takes over and provides that cohesion, provides that connection. So I think more the invisible hand and an artificial way of creating this free-floating anxiety vacuum, which is now being filled up, I am more of a believer that some players, some institutions play a role in creating these circumstances. Is there anything the last seven, eight months that you change your mind about when it comes to like conspiracies or things that are being artificially created? And what's your opinion? Well, I do look different towards a couple of things. Let's say the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. It all started with this 20 years ago when the, the UN pushed this forward. And the, the first thing I noticed about it was like, hmm, quite a good idea. Going to some forms of equal, equality, trying to, try to abolish poverty, get some more equality within the world concerning health, social determinants, also sustainability within climate issues. I was totally pro. But it's the same thing with every ideology that comes forward. You can either use it in a positive manner or you can start to abuse it. And what I'm a bit afraid of is that all these, these plans that came forward in the last 15 to 20 years to shape our future as such were good ideas and, were, and started off as being really protocols to enhance the future of humanity. But what happens when money comes in some players always tend to use these kind of models, like the sustainable development goes, to adapt them towards making an, a huge profit. You see it with climate issues, sustainability, you see it nowadays with the World Health Orga Organization as well. You, they are transparent about it. Who is the biggest funder of the WHO? Everybody knows. But he's also the guy who is in most of the pharmaceutical industries with his hedge funds. And passing every time a vaccine gets pushed in an arm gets money. You must be blind not to want uh, wanting to see this. You know they're transparent about this with their own organizations. So all these good protocols that are basically in favor of having a global scale that improves for everyone and that sets into some new outcomes towards equality is positive as such, but is being abused by some.
well, how I can easily look at these. Oh, poverty. Let's take control of the financial supply and centrally structure it so you have more control. Oh, more fish. Let's take control of the fish supply so we centralize that more control. Oh, let's take control uh, of, of veganism. Oh, let's take control of all the animal farming, replace it by veganism so we can take more control of the egg supply. So all these goals are like, okay, financial supply, food supply, fish supply, energy supply, et cetera, all these great goals. goals. And then they're just like, hey, how about we tackle this under the guise of something that sounds good, but then we're just going to get more centralized control, less people making the decisions, more power, money, and influence. And that way we have more power over basic human elemental elements of people their life. And if we, but this is conditional, if we have access to this and we can limit that access on probation linked on how well the citizens behave, we track and trace it. We put it in a QR code or in a chip in the end, they maybe get a universal basic income. As long as you align with their ideology, you know, you're always on probation. It's conditional freedom like a prisoner. Well, I tend to tend to agree. I did I did a lot of study on universal basic income. I think people who Google my name and and uh, and type in my name combined with universal basic income mm -hmm. will find a lot of data. I used to be a huge fan of universal basic income because again, it's a good ideology, mm -hmm. it's a good system, and it can help push the world forward and tries to balance out the inequalities we face in the world. But the same thing can be misused. And indeed, as you said, and that's something I'm afraid of, that's indeed that they are going to not only use the QR code and couple it towards a digital ID, which von der Leyen and the EU president and also Commissioner Vestager already put forward. We need to move on towards a digital ID, which will combine your health status and climate status. So you already know now that this QR code, code won't disappear. And that's a bit of a worry. Are we still, face, are we tr still trying to mitigate a health issue or are we currently misusing the health issue to implement a control system in which what you say is possibly an outcome? You will have a CO2 budget. You will have a fish, a meat budget. Everything has a certain budget. It has to be like measured. That's, that's when you go deeper. When you have an electric car, oh my God, freedom, I don't have to drive anymore. Yes, but it's all being linked to a central grid. And when you reach your budget, reach your energy, like you can't proceed anymore because everything is with checks if you can go to the next thing. And when everything is, I see transhumanism, a technocracy that is tracking every element of your life and all your freedom is like conditional and based on approval of a certain prescribed narrative. I see that happening now with the QR code, but what is stopping them from always saying like, how much do you smoke? How much do you eat? How much money do you make? How much property do you have? You'll own nothing and be happy. That's what the World Economic Forum says. But who is then going to determine how you live? Well, it's that false freedom within the matrix. But as soon as you step outside of it, oh, you can't get a payment processor of PayPal because you're not vaccinated. So yeah, it's not mandated. And it's not, you know, it's voluntary, but everything to have a meaningful life and, and squeeze the fun out of you is removed. So then the act, it's still a choice. Yeah, that's the whole thing that's happening today. Eh? They say the government says you're free to get vaccinated. You don't have to. But if you don't, you don't have a life anymore. So, yeah, that's, push, that's pu basically pushing the arm on the back and 
I'm afraid this is indeed, if we don't stand up against this, this will continue. My projection for the near future is that the current reason why they open up so many countries within Europe is because we have low figures of hospitalizations, infections. Yeah? Opening up everything will, will certainly lead to another rise in cases. And when you have a rise in cases, not looking at the mortality because that will remain low, same with hospitalization, but they will use cases as the way to fear monger again in the, in the end of, by the end of the year. Now they're opening up everything everywhere in Europe. By December, they start testing. Cases go up and then they can prolong the COVID story for another five, six months. But the COVID story, in my opinion, is basically worn out. You know, all the evidence is against all the measures being taken by politicians. The evidence keeps piling up against what is happening today. One. Second, the virus is becoming endemic. So, which we saw previously with different other viruses, one wave, second wave, sometimes a third wave, which we had, and then it starts to become endemic. So they don't have a reason anymore to keep shoving uh, the corona crisis forward, but they don't have an alternative yet. And what do I see happening now since the last uh, three weeks ago, suddenly Greta Thunberg appeared again. And I was like, what the hell, where does she come from mm. now? And yesterday here in Belgium, we had a huge climate mars of 25,000 people. And I was like, these people, they mean good, yeah. but they don't understand they are shooting in their own foot. And the next, what happened, what, what my opinion is that by next year, the COVID crisis can't be misused anymore because all the data point in the other direction. And then they'll have to find something else. And that's probably the climate. And then climate will be combined to your digital ID. And as for such, it becomes more and more problematic for people like me who don't get vaccinated and, 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 and see all these things happening to basically say, okay, this is not my world. This is not the world I choose for. This is basically ending my personal integrity. This is basically killing my individual rights. And yeah, people will have to make choices. And I also think there's a geopolitical division being. It's not implemented, it's just uh, it arose in, in a quite natural fashion, but there's a geopolitical division being put forward between the West and Asia. And if you see that Southeast Asia, which are mostly lo um, low and middle income countries, already have the same gross domestic product since 2020. If you go to the World Bank, also transparent, you can get the data there. The Southeast Asian countries have 25% of the gross domestic product of the world. And what does the West own? 25% of the gross domestic product. It's the first time in history that the two curves of Asia and the West come together and they are at the same level. And that's a big scare of the neoliberal capitalistic model that is flat broke that Asia, with low- and middle-income countries, is taking over the world. I have a lot of context now in Asia, the last few weeks and months, and you see that a lot of countries don't even follow anymore. They have a low vaccination rate, they have no mortality, no hospitalizations, and they all say, okay, look, we have to take this for what it really is. It's a severe flu, you have to take correct measures, but we're not going to follow all these extreme measures because there is no use, uh, we don't have any use for it. 
But in the West, they keep implementing these strict measures. So what my scare is, is that the West will be used as a kind of, and certainly Europe as a kind of battlefield to restart a neoliberal uh, capitalistic model. And as for such, you need control over the people. And if you, if you want to implement this kind of new system, then the best way to do it is to have control over the population, because if they are controlled by, with a kind of social credit system, they won't respond. Well, that is the thing, right? For me, there's a lot of conditionals about, you know, the long-term yeah. effects. Sorry to interrupt, but there's sure. all hypothesis, huh? but I'm put forward. Exactly. That's always, you know, you want to have a critical stance towards it and use critical thinking and some common sense, which we talked about last time. But for me, it's not about the vaccine. It's not even about the QR code. You have to look at the QR code as the decentralization of your data that they can track and trace, and then they can make sure that they link it to something central, that they follow it up. And if you step outside of the forced prescribed narrative, they give you conditional freedoms and maybe you can move a little bit, but some freedom, some fun, some comfort will be taken away. And it's now not a vaccination passport. More and more data will be centralized in that part that tracks and traces you, which first will be a phone or a, a paper, then on your phone, then maybe in your body. And already talked about it two years ago. In the future, maybe also virtual reality. Be safe in your house. Don't infect people. Live online. Live in the matrix. And then they can also influence what you see before your eyes. Because that is, for me, the essence of mind control. Control of behavior and control of perception. Perception is through what you see and what you're exposed to, the prescribed narrative, the narrow bandwidth of acceptable opinion. And the behavior is everything that you do, what you eat, what you feel, what you say, where you move, if that is tracked and traced, and under a good guise being put provisional that you can have it, then they can take it away. And then, you know, you have that centralized control with, uh, with, with all the technocracy, transhumanism with technology being more and more part of people. And then through technology, you can centralize it and have like certain institutions, preferably on a worldwide level for worldwide crisis. And then you need that new world order, new globalist order, new ministry of health that is worldwide. And then fewer people, fewer institutions make certain decisions and you just get all the data from people. As such, I don't have a problem with all this. You know, I already predicted this 10, 15 years ago that we would go to some kind of Star Trek-like environment. You know, everybody wearing the same suits, uh, same cars, or in this case, same flying machines, whatever. I don't have a real problem with it. As long as it is made to improve an individual's life. And there again, that may be an ideology, but as long as it's in favor of the population, I don't have a problem with it. But that doesn't seem to be the case. They're taking away rights. And that makes it, at this time, for me, okay, it's all an hypothesis, but I'm worried about that. You know? Every ideology can be put forward in a positive manner or a negative manner. And I think as a society, we have to be careful and we have to scrutinize critically overthink everything they bring forward. And we certainly may not lose our voice. Well, I think people mostly see tyranny as something overt, overt violence. There are the tanks, there they're invading us. 
But when I see right now the model with the passes, QR codes, people, healthy people being pariahs and not be able to just go to social places, you squeeze the fun out of them. I do see a lot of resemblances with World War II. I see a lot of resemblances with what happened to the Jews. Yes, they're not going to gas chambers or it's not the Holocaust. But when it comes to fundamental freedoms, a way of living, I see a lot of similarities between what's happening. And I do believe that with all the knowledge we have right now about people, their neurological, their social, their psychological behavior, I 100% know that there are certain people who know very well what the group behavior of people is, what are the essential triggers to put into place to make them vote, behave a certain way, or condone something. And I am convinced it doesn't have to be everyone that there are crucial institutions who have a certain view of humanity. Maybe they believe it's benevolent, could be that they very well know which kind of pressures to trigger, like social pressures, then fear, fear of death, etc. because these are very big levers to make people do something. I do agree. I think a lot of international players, powerful players, institutions, really think everything they do is beneficial to the world, the global population. They really think so. Although, I don't know why, but anyway... I think they put it forward from a good perspective. The thing is, they don't understand that a lot of individuals still have their own feelings and their own perceptions on things, and you can't shove it up people's, you know? People still have to the, need the possibility to say no, or to say, no, this is not what I want, without being taken away all the rights. Well, we've been seeing this increasingly the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, that's another thing. Europe was being sold as the amazing thing, the dream, one currency, freedom, peace, etc. But then you see more and more that what kind of individual decisions can we still make in our life, in our family, in our community, in our city, in our country? More and more big organizations, capitalist institutions, worldwide institutions, geopolitical institutions, if you want to call it geopolitical, they are determining the future of humanity and what our life will look like. Where is our sovereignty? Where is our say in how we want to mold humanity? Plus, even our say, if you would ask people right now, well, my opinion is, well, they just mimic, <laughs> they just mimic their, their rhetoric that, have, that they have been fed for like years, decades, 30 years. So where is our say about how can we use technology? How can we make life more meaningful, more fulfilling? Let's have a say about it. I do see some advantages of like tracking certain things to sleep better, or I don't know if there should be a system based on how much insurance you pay on how healthy you are. We could have a discussion about this, but which kind of people determine it now? Okay, the people who are having a lot of power, money, and influence of society going in a certain direction. I agree. Yeah, totally. Now, I want to talk a bit last about how this whole situation was for you, because you, you worked so much for the university, you used numbers, then you were fired by one university or high school, or how do you call it, and then the other one in Brussels. How did you give meaning to your life, and how do you see your future developing? Let's say I gained energy by the fact that a lot of people were happy with the things I put forward. They've often messaged me and said, look, what you brought forward opened my eyes or what you brought forward coincided with what I was thinking, but I couldn't reflect on it because there was no one else that had the same story or, or bringing forward the same kind of thinking. So that gave me a bit of energy to, to proceed in this. I, I still think I didn't really cock up. I made a few predictions and up until now, unfortunately, a lot of them became reality yeah. and I, I don't know what the future will bring you know i don't think i have a future left here uh, in belgium we are seven months after my dismissals 
And yeah, nothing really pops up. I tried to get in touch with colleagues of mine in other institutes and they all said, look, we want to help you out, but officially we, we won't be able to, to get you a job. Yeah, everything's politicized. All universities are member of boards of directors. You know, this is the way it goes. And, and so I, I think I will have to find my way out uh, somewhere abroad, probably with, outside of the EU, if I still want to, to find a way to make a living. Huh? I will keep following up on all this and uh, I won't be silenced. So if this takes me to, to move over to another continent, I will. Yeah, because it's also a sad state of affairs in our country, right? When you look at the opposition, sometimes I, and it's tragically like you can't even get a, a play field full at a school in Belgium. And then the propaganda seems to work well. 25,000 people at the climate march yesterday. I'm against pollution, by the way. Huh? Again, here, I'm open to things, right? But oftentimes it's about being abused. But in Belgium, it's, it's very severe, the lack of opposition and critical voices. Um, I'm very thankful that you, Matthias Smet, and some other people are speaking out, but it's a very sad state of affairs there. Yeah, I think we're one of the, the baddest examples in human history. Yeah. There is still debate in Holland, as I said previously, within the Mala even in the Malaysian government. They were open to debate with the health experts, but Belgium has a very, very bad track record. Record, And I'm sure in, when we look at this within 20 years, 25 years time, this will be, yeah, Belgium will be one of the worst countries ever considering free speech repression passively. It's not actively being repressed, but on a passive, ma passive manner. But we knew this beforehand, you know, Belgium always scored bad in the, Hofstede index, which one of the parameters is, let's say, the, the blind... The bl the bl blind falling of authority, right? Yeah, indeed, yeah. And Belgium scores a 94% there, so nobody thinks. It just follows the lead of the government, and that's it. And I don't think we should be proud of that as a society. It tells a lot, of, of, it tells a lot about who we are. And, and I know a lot of people will listen to this, and maybe some people are going to be pissed about that i say this but i don't know if belgium will still exist in the coming decades i think it's a failed state it really is a failed state if, if 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 i would have to explain to people right now one element that our minister of health right now we've been we've been without a federal government for a year and a half during the so-called biggest crisis ever because we were number one so-called in covid deaths and when i tell them now like that our minister of health was not even on the election list that the brother of the minister who made our government fall gets an extra minister post and all other stuff in other countries, they would be outraged that the party who got the most votes was kept out of just negotiations to form a government when they had so much votes, no matter if you align with them ideologically or not. I mean, people with pride, with self-esteem on an individual level, as in self-esteem for the nation's culture, they would stand up towards this and say like, no, no, enough is enough. People are asleep here due to the fact that our government became so complicated. And in, in the last decades, eh, we have so many governments in the different states and the different parts of Belgium with all, all the prime minister and minister of economics and you name it. I, I think we have about, what, it, what, what is it, 200 ministers in the country for 11.5 uh, million people. It's, it's, total ludicrous. it's total lunacy. And I think this let people to to drop interest 
in the last 20 years in politics, people just lost interest. It, it became so difficult to follow, to keep up with it, that a lot of people just don't even engage anymore. I mean, we had the world record of being without a federal government when Iraq was trying to get a government. We're like such a failed state that we have the world record, not, not only now, but just like, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we were two years without a federal government. And then we partied when we had the world government world record. Yeah. To eat fries. That was what we did. We were celebrating that we got the world record of being without a federal government. And now 20 years later, we had the same thing again for a year and a half yeah. of being without a federal government. Yeah. And that's another thing. Like they made all these laws where they were actually, you know, like a temporary government. The same thing in Netherlands. Yeah. They had to actually abdicate because there was a scandal. They had new elections and they still are a provisionary government making all these laws. So I'm looking at this like you're making such a mockery of individual rights, politics and freedom. It, it's ludicrous. Yeah, it's ludicrous. And the, the democracy is gone awok totally in the last 20 years. We're now living in a part particracy or technocratic environment. And yeah, as I said before, the, if we, it all ends if we all say no. And as long as we don't, I'm afraid this, this system of control will get worse and, and, and i hope yeah and i hope when some people go to a bar and you may be sitting inside with your with, uh, being vaccinated i'm all for freedom right if you're well informed you can make whatever choice you want but if you see people standing you know looking with big eyes through the window oh my god i wish i could sit inside and it's so cozy i wish i could be social and hang out with my friends with like teary eyes looking through the window and you're eating your steak there and you see it's a healthy person who just wants to enjoy and have some fun I would also have like have some heart about the future of those people, of humanity, your children, your grandchildren. Maybe you had the jab one time, two times, but you're creating a societal model where this will be the way of living. And you see yourself living in this kind of society. That's what I would urge people also got the jab, but maybe are doubting about the third one or the fourth one. Like you can end this by saying no and saying like enough, you know, we, we, we did it for a reason. I see the goalpost keeps on being moved and then it's like, no, no, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. True. We can only hope that people start seeing reality behind this. Weren't you very much disillusioned by the media because the fact that you went on TV and you got character assassinated and you don't even got an official like apology and with the way how the media is treating it. I know that Fontilo and other co media companies are owning a lot of Belgium and the Netherlands, but the lack of integrity and the one-sidedness in the media, it's, it's definitely on a level that I would never thought imaginable. Well, it's not only in Belgium, it's an international phenomenon. Eh? Media isn't independent anymore. Probably hasn't been for the last 20 years, but this is, yeah. Because you just had, just before this interview, you had Project Veritas, who did like undercover interviews with people from Pfizer, who were just also admitting like, yeah, natural immunity is a lot better. And it just, you know, was on the day that Facebook was like out, the, the Pandora papers are also leaked, which is a lot of, a lot of yeah. offshore tax stuff of like big politicians. So even there, you have people who are showing like there's something going on and no media coverage, no, nobody talking about this. No, nothing ever happens with it. We, we now they're talking about the Pandora Papers. A few years ago, it were it were about the, we had the Bahama Papers, and then a few years before Panama Papers. We had the Panama Papers, and nothing happens. It just comes out, never said, and then six months later, no, nothing has happened internationally. So, in my opinion, this has nothing to do with with, with journalism. That this is to keep people 
busy for a short amount of time to distract them from reality. Yeah, and then you have like protests in a lot of countries, never coverage. So when there's coverage, it's like extreme right-wing nationalists or some people who cause some ruckus and that determines then the march or whatever. I mean... I don't think all these journalists do it from a bad spirit, bad heart. A lot of journalists don't even know they are playing, are, are being forced to play a game. They're just blind to it. They're also cognitive, cognitive dissonant, just like... 90% of the rest of the population, they just don't see the, the bigger picture or the, context, the context, is, context behind all this. So you can't blame those people themselves, you know. It's, it's, they're just part of a systemic thinking that has been introduced a few decades ago, since the 70s, 80s. It's the systemic thinking became implemented within population and, and, and people aren't aware that they are part of the system themselves. Well, this is the thing, and I would have a whole other podcast. And if people want me to talk about this on the podcast, I could also come on and discuss it. This is also what culture Marxism realized because Gramsci didn't see workers unite and stand up for communism. They were, were still fighting in World War I for their own nation. And that's when he realized like the revolution has to come through the perception of people themselves. What if we can make people believe or prescribe the narrative and they start executing it? We don't need tanks. We don't need war. We don't need violence. That way we create a breeding ground for what we want in the first place. And that is the information war, the perceptual war, the psychological war, which is a lot more effective because you don't even notice that there's, you know, a war going on inside you or the enemy is invading in your own perception. It's much more effective. True. Last thing I want to talk about is a hopeful thing that you're like creating about a new path that you have with like a school or about health and wellness. Could you tell a bit more about well, it's still a primary thought that hasn't been developed in the, in the broadest sense yet, but I would like to create a kind of platform, health platform, which also entails a think tank. And within the think tank, I think it should be possible to bring people together within a community to start thinking of a new world. And preparing two spear points, one of them is how do we change the health model we know today? Because Corona crisis has proved one thing, that the reductionist thinking within the biomedical field has led to much more consequences than it brought solutions. And on the other hand, we have a psychosocial dilemma with our society at, the, at this moment. We reached a border. We need, we need to rethink the way we want to move on as society because society has failed in every object in the last 30 years and with the corona crisis just extrapolated this that we have been living for too long in a very systemic way of thinking losing every individual way of thinking and we have to reinvent society as it were to leave something much more worthful to our children and the next generations and it can't continue as it is today and this help platform i want to create i hope to start with it next year somewhere mm -hmm. uh, um, it's always nice if people want to uh, invest in it because it costs mm -hmm. a lot of money to set something up like this and i would like to hire some colleagues of mine to work together bring forward also medical analysis which are scrutinized critically acclaimed uh, critically scrutinized evidence not like we see today 
in which we do a lot of cherry picking. I think a lot of data also stay in an academic level, on an academic level for too long, sometimes 10, 15 years before it reaches the ground floor. Doctors, after five years, most of the time after they graduate, five years later, they, they don't know, they, they didn't read articles anymore. They probably are totally away from reality by then. It's also something that I don't understand, by the way, like a lot of universities or uh, institutions are being financed by public money. Why would you have to be able to pay to access those papers? Wouldn't it be great if all the research and papers that all universities do are just publicly available? But that's something we've already faced in the 70s. Up until then, universities were paid for by, by governments. You know, all the fundings came from governments. Then we saw a change a shift there towards commercial industries and, and philanthropic organizations that started sponsoring universities. And since then, everything became, yeah, a bit money-driven. And it would be better for society if this becomes totally independent again, and the academia and, and, and universities and scientific literature. And this would, would open up a lot of more possibilities. Now, now it takes 15 years for your research to reach the, gro the ground floor, you know. And we want to facilitate this. All the newest findings we want to put forward to the, all, to the general population, not to the specialists, but bring forward, let's say, statins. It's a very nice example. We already know for 10 years that stat statins don't contribute whatsoever in preventing strokes and you name it. Yeah? Mm. It's, been, it's one of the biggest selling pharma products in, on earth. Yeah? So what we want to do is facilitate this communication, bring forward all these meta-analyses that already have proven that statins only have a substantial effect in people that already had a stroke in preventing a second one. But it has no prophylactic effect whatsoever. But everyone above 50-50 with high cholesterol gets statins, standard. And we want to break down this system. You know, We want to prove that there is sufficiently good methodological data available that proves that these pharma-led, inducted pharma push on medicines on the market is unnecessary. And a lot of doctors even don't know because they don't have the time to read uh, uh, scientific papers anymore. So we, someone has to bring forward these messages that are out there in the scientific field, but are, let's say, locked up in an ivory tower and never get out of it. And we want to present these data to broader population, in, and not in a scientific manner, just very well-written, simplistic, but clear and with a report on the background if people want to see the references they can also retrieve them like let's say like a wikipedia for help if people want to know more about that or get in touch with you or have questions about that where can they find out more and contact you i think the best way is linkedin at the moment yeah i don't post anything there anymore otherwise they ban me again but i can still read messages there so what keeps you up at night or what keeps you motivated because you can easily become like resentful or fall into the trap of, you know, feeling, yes, everything is a conspiracy. Nobody of the experts I can trust. None of the media I can trust. So how do you keep the balance and still have a meaningful life without being and because becoming I bitter? People, I don't think all the people that, uh, that are part of society are in, 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 in so everybody's intertwined. And we were talking about the journalists, they're intertwined as well. And not all of these people are bad people. No, they just 
think and being they are let's say prepared to think in a certain manner then you can't blame them so you can't blame anyone basically because it's like a chaos theory i still believe that humanity has the opportunity to think for itself but we have to learn people again to be critical and that's something that they have not been taught in the last 20 30 years and i'm sure if people this crisis won't last you know i'm quite sure this will this system will collapse in 5 to 10 years and then people will wake up and say damn what the hell we mm-hmm. we went through in the last decade and we need a new form of society and people well somebody put it uh, beautifully in uh, the last few months by stating the light will have to go out for everyone before the light will go out for everyone uh, go, goes on again for and that's that's also something that when you think of world war 2 and everybody thought like I wouldn't become a nazi you know and some people choose for it i can't can understand how they thought that way because the propaganda was just so big one thing that i just hope and not in terms of money and status etc but i hope people like you other people that I have on the podcast who are standing up, that they still get appreciated or rewarded in a certain way. Not for the glory, benefit, and all the fame, but just for the fact that you're sacrificing something. You're putting something on the line. It's not easy to have that position because you could easily just say like, hey, I'm just going to have my predictable future and comfort, and I'm just going to let it slide by. So I hope that there's some karmic law that people who stand up right now, that they, they're being put in the picture or they get some Maybe this might become the, the way to prove that karma exists. Eh? <laughs> Let's hope so. It's been an honor to have you on the podcast and it has been illuminating to hear you talk after seven months. And I'm really excited about what you will be creating and the health and wellness instead of illness uh, changes we will create. Thanks for being a guest, Sam. Thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.